Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden right here on your hometown radio. Of course, that's 93.9 FM, WRWH. And we've been having a fun time here lately on New Southern Garden talking about everything perennials. And remember, perennials are those plants that return year after year. And I might as well take this time, since we're summarizing our previous uh, shows from days gone by, that the you can remember the difference between a perennial plant and an annual plant pretty easily. Remember back in high school, every year, you got your high school yearbook or your annual. And you got one of those books filled with awkward photos and some, you know, weirdos and some friends. <laughs> you got that book every year. And it's the same in the garden. The annual plants are plants that only last for one season. So here in the South, we have a really good situation where we can grow annuals throughout spring and summer. And then when the frost comes, they get killed back. But we also have a season through fall and winter that we can plant winter annuals. You know, pansies, violas, snapdragons, dusty millers. There's plenty we can grow in the South over the winter. But when we talk about perennials, those are those plants that are coming back year after year for many years. Now, with that being said, just like all living creatures, perennial plants have a lifespan. And so you may get five, you may get a decade or more with properly uh, maintaining, feeding, encouraging your perennial plants. But perennials do make a dramatic statement in the landscape. And the fact that you don't have to replant them quite as often as you do annuals is a good thing. And so if you've missed any episode about our perennial discussion, just check it out online at NewSouthernGarden.com. If you can't join us here at WRWH 93.9 FM every Saturday at 10 a.m., well, that's okay. Because we've got a website that you can find every episode we've ever had. And I will go ahead and mention that this week we're taking a break from perennials. Well, maybe not, because we do have our Q&A week. And we've got a couple of uh, questions about perennial plants today. But Q&A week, of course, we like to collect all of your questions, whether you're submitting them via uh, NewSouthernGarden.com or on Facebook or on Instagram. There are plenty of ways to get in contact with the show here, and we've collected your questions so that we can answer them. Your questions, our answers, and solutions, because uh, a, a particular question we'll have today is dealing with diseases, diseases on vegetables, particularly tomatoes. Of course, tomatoes are America's number one vegetable, 
not just uh, as far as plants to grow in the vegetable garden, but also uh, fruits to buy at the produce store and or the markets. And so today, of course, we're answering your questions, getting you growing and growing well. But I do want to remind you that if you've missed any part of our perennial discussion, you can check up uh, check up. No, you can uh, get read or listened up at NewSouthernGarden.com and, of course, all the podcasting apps. But you are here now, and I am here, and our questions, your questions, are here. So that is what we're going to be talking about today, things that are going on in your landscape, things that you want to do but need some assistance with, or maybe some struggles you may be having uh, and need some solutions for. But before we open the mailbag, I do want to remind you, of course, I don't know if you need the reminder, but this is Memorial Day weekend. Of course, Monday is Memorial Day. It is also going to be the last day of this month, and it's a good time to reflect, of course, the reason why Memorial Day is there for all of those who have uh, gone on before and who have uh, served our country and served it well and given their life. Of course, Jesus Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself says, that there is no greater gift one could give but to lay down his life for his friends. And thank goodness we live in this wonderful country. Uh, despite any flaws or blemishes we may have, everyone has flaws and blemishes after all, uh, but we are here in the land of the free, and it is because the sacrifice those have made uh, that we've been able to maintain it now for nearly 250 years. So with all that in mind, Memorial Day around the corner, maybe today you're planning to go uh, on the lakes, (laughs) maybe you're going to take a trip over this weekend, Um, I don't know what you plan to do, or how you plan to celebrate and enjoy if you have Monday off, but there is something we can do in our landscapes and in our gardens, and it comes up from time to time, especially uh, working uh, with clients at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But many folks have something they want to memorialize, make a statement, have a reminder. And how do we do that? Well, in society, we build buildings in memoriam to certain individuals. Sometimes we build monuments, statues, etc., etc., Uh, Some folks may, you know, wear a certain t-shirt or clothing that memorializes someone they've loved, maybe someone who's gone on before, and you can do the same thing in the garden. And it's a great way, you know, living plants, because a memorial garden can memorialize anyone. It can be uh, attributing, maybe fallen soldiers. It can um, be built and grown to Uh, remember loved ones, maybe grandmothers, maybe mothers, maybe uh, children who unfortunately did not survive childhood. And I think that creating a memorial garden is one of the uh, best ways to memorialize someone. And why is that? Well, a garden is always changing. You can replace things. You know, once you've built a statue or a building, it's pretty much going to be that same way Uh, for the rest of its time here on the earth. But in the garden, you can change out. You can, just as that individual who you've loved and adored, uh, who no longer is is with us, they would be changing too. They would be growing. They would be getting older. They would uh, be living life. And that is all representative in a garden. It's all there. 
And so I thought, but just before we get into questions, I may give you a few tips on, on how to create a memorial garden. Because a memorial garden is quite different than maybe any other garden that you may grow. A memorial garden may be as simple as a, uh, a border or a bed filled with plants. It may be as intricate as um, an outdoor room. Maybe there's walls or hedges uh, creating a very quiet and solemn place to go and to remember that loved one. And so there's a lot of ways that you can approach it. It may be one plant. It may be one plant. And I'll give you an example. It's not really a memorial planting, uh, but my aunt, when her grandchildren were born, she planted a tree uh, for them that year that they were born. And so now uh, she has four grandkids. There are the oldest has a large tree because it's been there for much longer. And the youngest still has a small budding tree because he's just about three years old. I guess he'll be four this year. Uh, but anyhow, the point is, you know, that tree is following their life. It was planted the same year they were born and it's growing just like they are. And so a memorial garden could be like my aunt did for her newborn children, uh, grandchildren, could be a simple tree. It could be just one tree. As a matter of fact, there's nothing wrong with saying that a tree in itself can be a garden, especially as those trees get older and you can sit underneath their shade. I was at a place in South Georgia many years ago uh, at a conference, and where we stayed was quite picturesque. It was a um, uh, sort of in a garden in itself and cotton fields surrounding that. But there was one tree. It happened to be a live oak, which, of course, we can't grow too well up here on the north part of the state. But in the southern part, live oaks grow very large and broad, and their branches hang low. And so underneath that tree, they, they uh, strung the uh, interior with lights and you could go underneath that tree uh, in the middle of the night even and enjoy the beauty of nature uh, right there. And so in this case, that one tree was the garden. You stood underneath, you looked above and saw the architecture and the structure of the branches and the twisting and turning and, of course, uh, the leaves that graced those branches. And I was moved. It was a beautiful situation. They had some tables, there were chairs, and people could enjoy that one plant was so large and so vast and so high and so uh, just structured that it itself was a garden. And so maybe for Memorial Day or if you continue with trying to think of ways to memorialize a loved one uh, who, has, who is no longer uh, with you, maybe just planting a tree, one tree, but make sure that tree is noble. Uh, what I mean by noble is that make sure that tree is going to be long-lived is going to be well-branched, is going to be a strong tree so that it endures time, that hopefully it will be here after you. Uh, a particular tree I would not memorialize someone with would be uh, Bradford pear. Of course, Bradford pears are very weak-wooded. They're, they're not that great of a tree. They do break very, very easily, and their blossoms, even though they're beautiful, the Bradford pear blossom smells like fish. To me, sort of like fish sticks, and I'm not a big fan of fish sticks. And so to put up a stinky uh, breaking tree for a loved one is, is not a great statement to make. But of course, on the small side of things, red buds and service berries, these all have blossoms and they are long-lived and beautiful plants that are a great way to memorialize an individual. Now, moving into more creating a space or a garden, what are some things you may want to consider? 
Well, I've always found that memorializing someone uh, may be very easy or very appropriate, I should say, by maybe using some of their favorite colors. If you know your loved one's favorite colors, then what better way to memorialize them than to plant plants uh, that exhibit that color in some form? Now, of course, if your loved one absolutely loved the color green, then you've got an easy job. You can pick about any plant you want. Uh, or maybe shades of green. We have a, uh, we've talked about using plants with different shades of green uh, to make very good impactful statements with your foliage. And you can find that episode at NewSouthernGarden.com. It's uh, several episodes back, I believe. Um, but the color is so important. If your loved one liked pinks and purples, well, start with plants that are pink and purple. It's a great way to do that. Now, other than plants, there are some other ways that you may um, do some hardscaping, we'll say. That's what we call it here in the gardening world. Hardscaping, of course. Maybe creating uh, a statue of something or, or finding a, a small statue or, or some kind of uh, piece of garden art that they would really have loved, that your loved one would really have enjoyed. Or maybe even they left behind something that can endure the elements. Maybe they had something in their own garden or landscapes that you might be able to acquire or have been uh, inherited with. And that is just another way that you can place some reminder of that person in the landscape. Now, of course, creating plaques or creating small monuments, maybe with their name or something that reminds you, a short poem or some words, uh, maybe some words they left behind, maybe something they used to say all the time that reminds every time you think of that phrase, uh, it reminds you of that person. It's not just about plants in the garden, it's also about structures. And so maybe a solitary bench, a bench where you can sit or other loved ones who knew this individual, they might be able to sit there as well in your garden, in that landscape, and be reminded of the good times, the memories, all the fun and the laughter, and yes, the tears and the sadness that may have happened uh, during their time on earth. Because all of these things are very um, memorative, memorative, I don't think that's a word, but we're going to move on, very remind, they remind you of that loved one. And I think it's a great thing. And I thought it would be a good time to talk about creating a memorial garden right here on the Memorial Day weekend of 2021. And so with all that being said, despite what colors you use, what plants you use, if you plant, if you have a bench, if you plant a tree, just remember that you're creating a space to remind you, to bring back good memories, good times of that person who was so important in your life. When we get back, we've got your questions. Hang on tight. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. 
Well, gang, welcome to Q&A week here on New Southern Garden. This is that time of the month that we decide to open a mailbag that you have sent us questions all month long, and we dedicate this show to answering your questions. So, like I've always said, your questions, our answers, whether you've got a something bothering your begonias or agitating your asters, We've got solutions for you. And, of course, if you find something going on in your landscape this summer, uh, well, I, should say, I shouldn't say summer, it's still spring, but gosh, it's been hot. And so if you find something this garden year that you need some help with, feel free to send us a question on the Contact Us page at NewSouthernGarden.com. And, of course, we are also on Facebook and Instagram, and those are great ways to submit photographs and pictures. And you might as well follow and like whatever the lingo is there, uh, like New Southern Garden on the social media so that we can keep in touch and you can know what's going on uh, with the show. So let's jump right into this mailbag. Uh, Carl from Northeast Georgia, he, he contacted us via Facebook message. And he's obviously been listening to the past uh, five weeks of the program or so because we've been talking about perennial plants. And like I said in uh, the first segment that, yes, perennial plants are those plants that come back year after year. So there's some great benefits to using them. But Carl says that uh, I want to plant a perennial garden, but don't know which ones to choose. There's so many. That is so true, Carl. His question, what are some good books that help describe perennial plants and how they grow? Well, I absolutely love to recommend books because I've always thought that the more you know, the more you can grow. And we have here in the 21st century, uh, this second decade of the 21st century, we have probably at the uh, greatest point uh, of horticulture that we've ever been because we've got so many historical books and so many new books that are written. There's been so much research done that's coming out of universities and other third parties. And so we've got good information on plants and not only information, but we also have a variety of new plants that we can grow. Plants that our grandfathers, grandmothers, forefathers could have only dreamed of. For instance, not necessarily a perennial, but it is a shrub. It's not a herbaceous perennial, but like the Encore azaleas and the Bloomathon azaleas. These azaleas, they bloom more than one time per year. And our, our ancestors will say they only knew azaleas that bloomed one time of the year. But now here we are, uh, 21 years into the 21st century, and we've got azaleas that bloom maybe twice, at l up to three times per year. And so I always like to recommend books because there's always so much new stuff going on. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And I understand where Carl, where Carl is coming from. But as far as perennial plant books, there are a few that I would definitely recommend you check out. And all of these books can actually be purchased on Amazon, uh, internet sites. There's plenty of bookstores as well if you can request them there. But they are up to date and available on the market today. So I thought that would be important that if I recommend a book that you can actually find it easily. Now, this first book, actually it's going to be a, a two-part <laughs> book in, in a way, uh, is written by a former um, college professor of mine. When I studied at the University of Georgia, uh, the perennial plant master 
of course. Uh, his name is Alan Armitage, Dr. Alan Armitage. And he has two books that I would recommend you check out. The first one, however, is basically the textbook of Herbaceous Perennial Plants, and that's its name, Herbaceous Perennial Plants by Dr. Alan Armitage. Now, that book is the book we use to identify and study in, in the University of Georgia. So this book is not necessarily as friendly as his other book that I'll describe, uh, but this book is very detailed. He describes um, different species of perennials. Uh, and also some of their cultivars. And, of course, cultivars are those cultivated varieties, something that has a unique interest or intrigue. But Herbaceous Perennial Plants, it's not like a Southern Living Magazine kind of book. <laughs> it is pretty, um, uh, pretty. It is, I wouldn't say it's dry, though, because he's a great writer, and even that book is entertaining. There's no colored pictures, let me put it that way. No colored pictures, but there are hand-drawn diagrams. Well, there are a few colored pictures. But he did create a book called Armitage's Garden Perennials. Armitage's Garden Perennials, and it's basically a color encyclopedia. So this book is more friendly for those of us who really want to see a glossy photo with what the plants look like. You get the same information you do at the Herbaceous Perennial Plants book, but this book in particular is going to have gobs and gobs of of uh, flower pictures. And so I think, Carl, that kind of book will help you to uh, guide you in choosing some of the right plants. But regardless, whether you go with Herbaceous Perennial Plants by Alan Armitage or Armitage's Garden Perennials by Alan Armitage, those two plants uh, books, <laughs> those two plant books will educate you uh, tremendously. Now, another book that I would recommend for anyone who's interested in any kind of native plants, whether it's trees, shrubs, vines, perennials, grasses, um, there is a great book by Larry Melichamp from the University of North Carolina, so another Southerner, and with that in mind, this book is called Native Plants of the Southeast. Now, that is going to be very helpful for us down here in the South because he lists specific plants, very colorful, a lot of pictures of plants that you can see, but all of these plants, the reason this book is different is all of these plants are going to be found in our woods somewhere. They're going to be found in nature around the Southeast. So again, that book is Native Plants of the Southeast, and he does have an extensive perennial section. Uh, there are other sections dedicated to trees and shrubs, like I mentioned, and some other plants, water plants uh, and ferns and grasses. But all of these uh, plants are going to be found here. And I think you'll appreciate that because anytime we plant native plants, we are encouraging nature, encouraging what was naturally found here. Uh, our pollinators that are native here are going to recognize these plants that you plant because they've grown with them forever <laughs> here in the southern United States. But regardless, it's not just a perennial book. But I think that if you're interested in any kind of nature gardening or um, pollinator gardens, you definitely want to check out Native Plants of the Southeast by Larry Melichamp. Now, one last selection that I would leave you with here, uh, Carl, as far as perennial plant books, uh, is going to be called Perennial Garden Color. Now, Perennial Garden Color is written by an individual named William Welch, and he's from Texas A&M. 
So another Southerner, but we may get a different perspective than our very own University of Georgia and, of course, University of North Carolina writers. Um, we're going to get more, maybe some Western plants as well. So we're going to get a different perspective. We're going to be talking about some other plants that we may not necessarily use here, but that may do very well because Texas, of course, has to deal with the drought just like we do. Now, we may get a little more rain than them. We may have more humidity in certain areas of the state. But regardless, it's going to be a great book. Now, this book does have a large section called Perennials Past and Present. So, uh, Mr. Welch is talking about perennials from the old days and perennials from the modern day. Uh, So, it is up to date. It's not very old uh, as far as that goes. just about uh, seven or eight years. But the beginning part... Part one in Perennial Garden Color is going to talk about um, uh, easy garden color, perennials for easy garden color, arranging perennials, and of course, buying, planting, and caring for perennials. And so he's got some extra bonus information, if you will, uh, to get you started into perennial gardens and getting them growing and getting them growing well, like I always say. But regardless, these things, Four books by three authors, Herbaceous Perennial Plants and Armitage's Garden Perennials by Alan Armitage, and Native Plants of the Southeast by Larry Melichamp, and Perennial Garden Color by William Welch. They're all going to inspire you. They really will. They're well-written. They've got great photographs, great pictures, uh, or great diagrams of plants, and good information. And not only do they talk about just one type but they usually are going to be talking about many different types of the same type of plant. I know that's very confusing. But say agastache. Agastache has so many varieties and cultivars. It's a beautiful plant, great to, uh, drought disease, and disease tolerance. Uh, pollinators love it, but there's a bunch of them. And so if you get one, two, or all four of these books, you surely will be inspired and educated and well-informed on getting your perennial garden started. Now, when we get back, we're going to go to the vegetable garden with some problems. So hang on tight. For the world to behold. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So, gang, I wonder if you've got a question or a problem going on in your garden and your landscape. Because at the end of the month, right here on New Southern Garden, we answer your questions. And we want to be a resource to you. We want to be able to not just inspire you with the topics that we discuss, but we also want to help you directly in solving problems picking out appropriate plants or if you've got a unique specific situation we want to be here to help you with that and so today of course we are having our Q&A week we're answering your questions giving you our answers so that you can get growing and get growing well now already we've answered question about Uh, perennial plant books and are there some good ones to get some good information and to help choose plants for the perennial garden and there surely are 
But if you missed any part of that program, uh, part of the program today, uh, if you just joined us, you can listen to this show replayed and on demand whenever you want at NewSouthernGarden.com and, of course, all the podcasting apps. And while you're there, that's where you can leave a question. You can leave a question on the Contact Us page so we can be ready for the end of June so we can answer your questions next month. But if you're on Facebook or Instagram, that's a great way to leave a picture, to leave a video. If you want to do a walkthrough of your landscape because you just can't describe it in words, or you got to show us the spots on your plant, or you got to show us an insect you found, well, feel free to check us out on Facebook and Instagram and become our friend or follow us or like us or whatever they say these days. But regardless, we do have a question from NewSouthernGarden.com here from Ashley. Now, unfortunately, um, Ashley did want to send us a picture and we weren't able to get in touch with her soon enough before the show so that she could send us that picture. Uh, but I will mention that the, probably the best way to send a picture is through Facebook and Instagram. Because, like, you know, I've said it before, I haven't said it in a long time, but in this business, a picture is worth more than a thousand words because it's a very visual, gardening is a very visual thing. And so, yes, we may need to look at certain aspects, and it would be helpful to have a picture, but we did respond to Ashley, so I hope uh, that she'll be able to get us a picture soon, and we'll send her a direct message. Um, but Ashley says, hi, I have black spots on my leaves or on, yeah, on leaves of my Roma tomato seedlings. Help! Well, of course, there are a lot of things that can go wrong when you're growing plants from seeds. Sometimes they die of too much moisture. Sometimes they dry out. Uh, sometimes they do uh, have some bacterial and fungal problems. And so, without the photograph, um, I'm, we're still going to answer Ashley's question, but I just want to uh, give her some ideas. I just want to give you some ideas, Ashley, of what it may be or could be. So when we talk about uh, seedlings, there is one major concern that comes up uh, called dampening off. Now, I don't think that this is your problem, but maybe somebody is experiencing dampening off in their vegetable seedling beds. Uh, so the problem with dampening off is that either seeds don't sprout um, or the seedlings fall over very soon after they've emerged the ground. And you'll notice that at the soil line, the stems are very water-soaked and discolored, and the base of an infected stem is very soft and thin. Now, of course, this is not how you described it, Ashley. You described it as spots. But since you're dealing with seedlings, I thought I'd bring it up as a possibility. Now, dampening off is a very common problem in wet soil with high nitrogen levels, and generally that can be uh, the situation in potting soils, especially potting soils that have been added with um, nitrogen fertilizer. But regardless, this wet and rich soil promotes dampening off in two ways. First of all, the fungi that cause it are more active in that condition, wet and rich soil. And uh, so the seedlings are more succulent and susceptible at attack. So when these babies get attacked, they're juicy, they're ripe, they're delicious. Now, dampening off is a problem with crops that are planted too early in the spring, usually before the soil has had a chance to dry and warm sufficiently uh, for that seed to germinate quickly. But dampening off can also be a problem when weather uh, remains cloudy and wet 
uh, while the seeds are germinating or when the seedlings are just too heavily shaded. So I will mention that this year has been a wonderful year for diseases, for plant diseases. Of course, here in our area, at least as far as the Piedmont goes here in northern Georgia, we have had a decent amount of rain early on. And the weather was fairly cool. But now (laughs) we've got kind of dry weather. We haven't had rain in some time. So we are seeing a lot of disease problems that were due to our earlier spring conditions. So with all that in mind, it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing some spots because we've seen a lot of folks bring plants to the nursery or cuttings or clippings. And of course, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, Georgia, we have a diagnostic, a plant diagnostic center where we can help to diagnose uh, issues that you have. You can simply bring in, well, bring in some photographs, bring in some cuttings or clippings or leaves, and we can help diagnose some problems. Now, I don't think that what you're seeing, Ashley, is that dampening off, but I did think I would mention it since you're dealing with seedlings. I think that you may have one or of two, maybe both, hopefully not, but one of two, hopefully, uh, diseases that are very conducive with the kind of weather we've been having. First of all, there is a problem not just for tomatoes, but for a number of tomato family members like potatoes and peppers and also eggplants. They're all very closely related. And so these plants uh, do struggle with something called early blight. Early blight um, is a, can be a major catastrophe if it's not worked with, if you're not trying to get rid of it. Early blight shows these... Um, usually happens on the lower leaves of the plants. So I do want to make sure, Ashley, you're looking at your plant and seeing the spots on the lower leaves. Uh, If it's early blight, it will have large, irregular, dark spots and a significant amount of yellowing surrounding those spots. Now, in addition to that, early blight forms this very distinctive concentric rings in the spot, like circles, dark rings in the spots. And eventually, these spots may enlarge, causing the leaves to die completely and fall off. Now, if you have this problem, not just on tomatoes, but on uh, potatoes, you'll find that those tubers, the potato tubers, will be infested with brown, corky, dry spots. So it's not just a problem for tomatoes and peppers and all these other things. It's also a problem for the actual fruits themselves. Now, um, the, the, the disease can get into the root system particularly with potatoes. But I think that in order to determine if this is the culprit, early blight, I think that you do need to inspect those spots a little more thoroughly and see the shape of them, particularly because there is another leaf spot that you may have, Ashley. It's called septoria, septoria leaf spot. And septoria leaf spot is, is a smaller spot. It's almost like speckles on the leaves. Now, these are gray and circular. They're not irregular. That's going to be a key to distinguish if maybe you have early blight or septoria leaf spot because the septoria will be circular and they will look like little, not holes in the leaves, but they will look like flecks or speckles. Now, these gray circular spots of septoria leaf spot have a black center. 
So this is going to be quite distinctive too. And it's actually that black center of this leaf spot where the spores or the seeds of the fungus, if you will, the spores of the fungus emerge from. And they exit there and they just disperse onto other parts of the plant. Now, usually the septoria, like the early blight, will be found on the lower leaves. So if you're seeing um, this issue on the lower leaves, that's a good point to start. Now look for either circular small speckles with black centers or irregular dark spots with copious amounts of yellowing. That may be the early blight. But if you find that maybe it's the septoria, you will discover that the disease does spread upwards into the uh, higher leaves on the plant. And eventually those lower leaves are going to turn brown, they're going to shrivel, and they're going to die. Unfortunately, septoria leaf spot does love wet and humid weather. And I'm not sure where you're listening uh, at, Ashley, or where you're listening to New Southern Garden from, but you've probably, if you're here in the South, have experienced very similar weather like we have, very wet and humid. And so with all that being said, the question is, well, what can I do? Well, luckily, um, if you've got either early blight or you have septoria leaf spot, you can pretty much treat them the same way. So let me give you some tips to help control and hopefully eradicate this problem from your tomatoes. First of all, when you're buying seeds, you do want to make sure they're reputable dealers. Usually seed packets uh, in the garden centers, those are reputable folks. But trying to make sure your seeds aren't already infested or infected with disease is going to be important because the seed itself can harbor some of these diseases. Now, when it comes to growing tomatoes, it's a good idea to avoid planting tomatoes in the same space for at least three years. We call that crop rotation. So planting beans or okra or something in a different plant family in that spot for two or three years after tomatoes is a good idea. Rotate your plantings. If you're using a container, be sure to uh, start with fresh soil and be sure every year start with fresh soil and also uh, sterilize the container with uh, cleaning it with Clorox. Uh, Also, if you're planting in the ground, you want to be sure to keep space between your plants. Plenty of space between the plants is going to encourage airflow, keeping the leaves drier and decreasing humidity, which these fungus absolutely love. Now, try not to water your tomatoes in the evenings. We'd rather water them in the morning whenever the water can dry off throughout the day. But watering overnight keeps the leaves and the roots maybe too wet and encouraging disease. Um, And also, don't till or Work the soil around the plants when the soil is wet. That may encourage uh, putting diseases onto the leaves. Now, sanitation in the garden is important. What we mean by sanitation is removing and destroying any infected plant material by the end of the season. Get rid of it. Don't compost it. Don't leave the leaves, the stems of these plants on the ground. Keep it clean. Keep it fresh. Generally, you don't, I mean, Just don't uh, compost these plants that have the disease because you may find that that can carry over if you're using that compost in other areas. Now, um, 
Something you may not think about, but there are some wild nightshade plants that may harbor these diseases. And so trying to weed out wild nightshades uh, that naturally grow here is a good idea because they may be the culprit of putting that disease on your tomato plants. Now, of course, you may also have to treat with fungicide. Be sure that when you're using fungicide, you can use organic like sulfur. Uh, You can use um, uh, copper fungicides, and you can also use something like our bonide funganil that you can find at Lanier Nursery and Gardens. Remove any leaves that are uh, compromised (laughs) and also spray the rest of the plant with a fungicide, and that will prevent, hopefully prevent, the problem from going upwards into the top of the, the canopy. Well, Ashley, thanks for your question. I'm sorry you're having this problem, uh, but I know a lot of people are. So thanks for sending it in. And we've got more questions after this quick break when we get back. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. Well, gang, today is all about your questions, your gardening questions, and our answers here on New Southern Garden, because this is our Q&A week, and we've already talked about perennial plant books, we've talked about disease problems on tomatoes, and we're going to actually answer another question about perennials, but I do want to remind you, because this is uh, the, the last segment of today's show, it's gone by so quickly, that if you have a question that is just bothering your garden or making you uncomfortable in your landscape, well, feel free to send it to us either at NewSouthernGarden.com or on Facebook and Instagram uh, where you can send pictures and photographs or videos, that kind of thing, because photographs are helpful, and uh, especially if we're trying to identify something. But regardless, regardless, we do have a question here that is going to uh, bring us back to that perennial plant idea, which we've talked about for uh, some time now on the old episodes, so you can check those out at NewSouthernGarden.com or on the podcasting apps. But Carolyn in Alabama, she did send us a message via New Southern Garden Instagram. She says, any suggestions for perennial plants that are great in a container? I'm tired of planting annuals year after year. Well, I understand your frustration there. Of course, annuals are a great way to uh, get a lot of color in a container. Uh, so we can't dismiss them, but it does become tire- tiresome sometimes. And I do want to sort of break down, before we talk about plants, I do want to talk about a few concerns that we may have when we're planting perennials in containers. Now, first of all, we've got to be pretty um, pretty conscientious about the amount of sun that container is getting. 
Are you getting sun or are you getting shade? Some perennials are going to get smoked up in the sun and some perennials that need sun are not going to bloom as well in the shade. Usually our porches and our patios that are covered are not very sunny. And so, you know, that's when annuals play a good role because many annuals can grow under dense shade like a porch or a patio. And they will give you color in that condition. So you do want to be selective, Carolyn, about which perennials you plant and where you place them. So be sure you're checking the amount of sun or shade that you are getting in your desired planting area. Now, the good thing about containers is those containers can be moved. They're mobile if they're not too large and heavy. Or maybe you put them on a dolly so you can move them around. You might give them more sun in the day and then wheel them to the front of the house later on. But the other concern we have other than sun and shade is going to be your water needs. How much water does your plant need? So the problem with containers, and I've said this before, and I will say it again, that containers, and of course, that's what we do at the nursery. All of our plants are grown and sold in containers. You know, they're cheap plastic nursery pots, not beautiful containers, but they are in a container. And those water, uh, those containers need to be watered regularly. Now, some need to be watered every day if they're in the sun, some maybe twice a day if they're quite small and in the sun, and some that are in the shade maybe once a week. So you've really got to know that if you want a perennial to grow in a container for an extended period of time, give it what it needs. Now, the other concern that I have with, uh, you know, it's not a problem per se, but it is something to consider is that if you plan to put a perennial plant in a container with the intention on it coming back year after year, you've got to remember that by putting it in the container, taking it out of the ground or leaving it out of the ground, you are reducing the amount of warmth that the roots will have over winter. Right? So if a perennial is in the ground, it's hardy in the ground. It will come back. It has a protection. Uh, the roots have a winter protection. But as soon as we take that, you know, root-hardy, soil-hardy plant out of the ground and put it in a container, then it will experience temperatures much cooler, more frozen than if it was in the ground all winter long. Some perennials have no problem. They won't bat an eye being in a container and being frozen over winter. But some tender perennials, things that may need a little help like lantanas, um, Mexican petunias, some of those, they really don't want their roots to be frozen. And you can guarantee that a container being above ground will freeze over winter, even in our area. All it takes is some mild air temperature or some cold air temperatures for a couple of days and you'll have a frozen pot frozen roots. And so with that in mind, just make sure you're choosing wisely. Choose some very, very hardy plants. With all that being said, the last concern about growing perennials in containers is you are going to either have to plant that perennial in the ground after several years, or you may have to take the plant out, prune the roots, prune the top, and replant with new soil even, in that container. Or you can take a small containerized perennial and pot it into a larger container. 
But the point is, these perennials, because they, they're going to want to survive year after year, they're going to need root space. And even though we can trim back the top if it gets too bushy, those roots have either got to be pruned or given more space somehow. So perennials are great ideas for containers if you consider these things, the sun and shade conditions, the water needs, freezing temperatures over winter, and also the fact that they'll need more rooting space as years go on. But if you think of all these things and you work through it, then you will be able to grow perennials in containers. There's no problem. People do it all the time. So with that being said, let me give you a few plants that I usually start recommending for containers, perennial plants that I would recommend for a container um, that are pretty much um, no-brainer plants. So these will be easy to start with, Carolyn. First of all, one of the first no-brainer plants is euphorbia. Now, the euphorbias are in the spurge family. Some people call them spurges. Uh, deer don't care for them because they have a uh, latexy sap. Now, that sap might be um, an irritant for some people, so be careful when holding on to euphorbia plants or touching them. But they are mainly a foliage plant, and most euphorbias are evergreen. As a matter of fact, we have one at, the, uh, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens right now called Ascot Rainbow. Beautiful display of variegated foliage. They do have a flower that's unique. It's not super showy, but when it's blooming, it is a nice, unusual flower to have. Now, heucheras. Heucheras are wonderful, or, or coral bells. They do well in a container. They don't necessarily need ample amounts of water, but they do need to be watered every now and then. And so that would be a good one to use. Hardy ferns, hardy ferns like autumn fern, tassel fern, Japanese painted ferns. These ferns, some are larger than others, but they can be used in containers and do very well. Now, one plant that I'll mention uh, that is awesome for a very sunny site, very drought tolerant, fairly disease resistant, and the pollinators love it, is salvia. And salvia, any of the salvias usually, are going to be blooming their heads off. They are going to give you plenty of color because, again, uh, Carolyn, I know that you're looking for a a uh, plant that's going to look good in a container and also thrive well. And so these plants here are just the beginning. But that salvia is going to bloom almost like an annual, almost continuously, especially with some deadheading. Well, gang, thanks for joining us here on New Southern Garden. Today, this was the Q&A week, the end of May. So I'll say happy May to you and welcome into June. Uh, but otherwise, hope you all have a great Memorial Day. Join us next week at 10 o'clock right here on 93.9 FM WRWH for more New Southern Garden. See you next week. Stay well and grow well. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. 